0: Maybe seated. In your bulletin today, there's an outline with the scripture text today, but we're going to be going through different parts of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to attempt something dangerous today, not recommended. Hopping right into the middle of Ephesians puts you at a precarious place. But you at a place where you're starting to get into the section that Paul describes the duty of the Christian life, the practical, what we have to be ab- about, what we have to be active in, the practice of living out our Christianity. But if you don't have the foundation of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters that are full of duty, of, of doctrine, of truth, of grounding, who you are, your identity in Christ. If you don't understand your calling in the first three chapters, chapters four, five, and six just sound like a bunch of rules, and they're not. They are grounded, connected to, and should never be separated from what God says is true of you who are in Christ. I want us to keep that foundation in mind i'll draw us back a number of times to the first three chapters to give us the the grounding for the call to unity that paul calls us as christians to i'm going to read verses 1 through 7 of ephesians chapter 4 please follow along as i read god's holy inspired and errant word i therefore a prisoner for the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy Of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's pray. Father, again, we're in awe of your Word. It is truth, and you work that truth into our lives by your powerful Holy Spirit. So we ask, as we do every week, that your Spirit would actively illumine the Word so that we can understand its truths. Lord, with Your Spirit, we long for You to work those truths into our thinking, into our words, into our lives, that we would reflect what it means to live a life worthy of that calling that You have called us with. Father, we thank You for Your grace that just showers over us and so works in us to train us to say no to ungodliness and to say Yes, to the calling that you've called us to. Lord, would your Spirit be present among us, working and changing us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In this Christ-commissioned unity series that we've begun in John chapter 17, we looked at the prayer that Jesus prayed for you and for me, that we would be one even as the Father and He are one. Unity in the Godhead is the unity we should share with one another who are in Christ. And we share that unity, and it reflects to the world that watches. The world is watching your relationships with other believers to see, is this really true? Not, is it always right? Is it always good? Is everybody always getting along? But rather, does the gospel actually change the way that you fix things when they do go wrong, when conflict does happen? So we've worked through other scripture passages where we examined the threats to unity from James chapter 4. We looked at battling bitterness in Romans 12, as well as genuine love in Romans 12. We looked at judging justly that Jesus describes in Matthew 7. Pursuing and restoring lost sinners in Matthew 18... And then reconciling relationships through that forgiveness. So when we are in those relationships together, how do we keep it together? And Paul in Ephesians 4 here describes an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I'm not sure that's the best translation. Here's why. How many of you are eager about maintenance? Maintenance on your car, maybe. You just love to tinker around with it and get the oil changed and you're keeping track of every mile on those tires so that you're taking them in and getting it changed or your lawn. Maybe some of you are very just detailed about maintaining the lawn, maintaining your computer. Oh, that next update is coming. I better get right on that. I love to maintain my... I love to restore it and watch it go forever and ever and ever until it's finally ready to use again. All right, so maintaining things... Some of you are all about that. Some of us aren't quite as passionate about it. And what we see here in this translation of maintaining really is describing an eagerness to guard, to watch over something that's precious, something that is is critical. It's setting a guard over something that God has called us to and it's that unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is the, the, the central core of this, and it should be so precious to us that we're eagerly guarding, watching dig- diligently that there would be no disunity. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit is the way that the ESV has translated it, but I want you to, to see the necessity of this. This is not just a small thing. This is not just a when I get around to it. This isn't just a if it happens, it happens. If not, you know, I can go another thousand miles before I get my oil change. No, it's something that is so critical to the life of this body, of all Christians, that we need to be eager, to be diligent, to guard. So this morning we're going to see that God creates unity in the church by his gospel of grace. He's the one that creates it by his gospel of grace. And he calls us to eagerly maintain that by the same grace. Let's consider the calling as, verse 1, Paul as a prisoner of the Lord. And that could be a prisoner as in his state as incarcerated but prisoner unto the Lord or for the Lord is I'm I'm in bondage to Christ and and he is the one that that I am I'm chained to because I'm so devoted to him as my master what he does is he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called Well Nathan why are you asking to consider our calling and then talk about walking worthy when Paul says walk worthy of the calling which you've called, well, I'm turning it around because the calling that we've been called to was established by Paul in chapters one, two, and three, and when we consider that calling, it's the right motivation for walking worthy. If we don't consider that calling, we're going to be either um, we're going to be misdirected in our motivation for the walk. So let's consider that calling. What is the calling that he has called us to? Where is the calling that Paul speaks of? Just turn over to chapter 1 and see what we've been called to. And when you consider the marvelous salvation that God has done in Christ, that's a consideration that's worth Thinking about Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because He has called you to be in Christ, to be rightly related to Him by faith, there is blessing upon blessing for us. You are called to a blessed relationship that is good for now and into eternity. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Your calling is a chosen one. He picked you out. He sovereignly laid hold of you. You are called by Him for a purpose. Verse, The end of verse 4 says, In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Your calling is to be a child of God, sons and daughters of God, through His gracious calling you, predestining you to be His children. That's who you are. That's your identity. And you have been called for a purpose. We're not just wandering through life. You've been given a purpose that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. We've been adopted to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Why? For the praise of His glorious grace, that's your purpose, is that you would demonstrate God's glorious grace in your life with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He calls Jesus the Beloved. And we are in the Beloved, loved by God. In Him we have redemption through His blood. You're called from the slave market of sin... And to the household of God, that's what redemption is. Buying you out of bondage and calling you into sonship. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. What a calling this is. He lavishes His grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. He makes known to us the mystery of His will. He gives us a purpose He set this forth in Christ. And what is this calling? As individuals, we are called in this way. But he brings it to a head in verse 10 as a plan for the fullness of time. We're talking about the big picture, not just your individual life. The calling that God has to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. This is a grand plan from all eternity to the end of that chapter, verse 22. And he put... All things under his feet, and he gave him Jesus as head over all things, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Your purpose, your calling, is to be part of his body, the church. The Christ is the head of this body, and this this word picture that he uses throughout the book of Ephesians and in other places calls us to something that is bigger than ourselves. It's bigger than Redeemer Church. It is universal in its scope that God calls men and women and boys and girls from all tribes, tongues, and nations to gather together. The called-out ones are His church, the body. Your individual salvation, your individual calling fits into that greater calling That God has to make a body, a people, a church. Why is this important? I want to establish that this calling that he has on you as an individual and us as a church is so vital and important. It's crucial to your salvation. And because you've been called to such a glorious thing, you should walk worthy of that calling. This word worthy is an interesting word. It's axios, which means having the weight of another thing and so being of like value or worth as much. Worthy is literally bringing up the other beam of the scales and henceforth indicates equivalence. In other words, axios has the root meaning of balancing the scales. What's on one side of the scale should be equal in weight to what's on the other side of the scale. So a life that is walking worthy of the calling means that as great and marvelous and wonderful as this calling you have in Christ is, your life should match that. It should balance. It should be a reflection of your calling. Walking worthy, Paul decides to give us kind of a list of traits that will show up in us as we are living out that calling, as that grace is flowing through us into our actions and into our attitudes, the words that we choose. What does it look like, verse 2, when we walk worthy? Well, we walk with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think those first four traits, humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, are motivated by Verse 3, because we need to be eager, diligent to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, this is the calling that we have, the unity of the Spirit, this bond of peace. Why should we be so diligent to guard this? How can we be diligent in guarding it? Paul says, here's four ways that I could see you guarding this unity, and it starts with humility. Humility was described um, in Tim Keller's booklet, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He quotes C.S. Lewis. He says, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility. What is that? At the very end of the chapter on pride, if we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from that meeting thinking that they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying there are nobody is actually a, a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself, not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. Fixated thinking. Gospel humility is thinking of others. Putting others first. It's the Philippians 2, humility, that Jesus, in giving up the glories of heaven so that he could humble himself for our salvation. Humility is, by definition, lowly thinking, a humble attitude, modesty about our own abilities without arrogance. It's the opposite of pride. Contemplating what we were before, contemplating what we were before grace filled us, from the lifted us from the miry clay, should cause us to have a humble attitude. Has the gospel worked humility in your heart? Gentleness is an interesting word that it's defined as a consideration of others, restrained patience, it's meekness, it's patient trust in the midst of difficult circumstances. It suggests having one's emotions under control. It's the opposite of self-assertion and rudeness and harshness. It's not weakness, but it's knowing how to get angry at the right time for the right reason. People who are angered at every nuisance or inconvenience to themselves know nothing of gentleness meekness. The meek person doesn't have to fly off the handle because he is everything under the Spirit's control, yielding to the Spirit's control. Patience is this uh, term for long-suffering. It's translated in the King James Version. It's, It's holding out under that pressure longer and longer. It's not being quick to or easily angered It's bearing under that trial. The Greeks used it usually meant patience with people. It's the ability not to lose patience when people are foolish, not to grow irritable when they seem unteachable. It's the ability to accept the folly, the perversity, the blindness, the ingratitude of men, and still remain gracious and still toil on. That's hard to come by, isn't it? Because people are annoying. People are tough to get along with. People are a challenge. We're called to live with patience. This last term that he uses is, is a bearing with one another in love. Other places you'll hear it called forbearance. And it's showing tolerance. And tolerance has gotten a bad rap today, I think, because people are tolerant over things that we ought not to be tolerant over according to God's Word. But we tend to be less tolerant about the things that we should be tolerant of. We should bear with one another's infirmities and their weaknesses. This forbearance is having a... It's literally to hold oneself upright or firm against a person or thing, to bear up with, to bear with, to tolerate. It pictures restraint under provocation and includes a liberal allowance for the faults and failures of others. Uh, one person described it as that little yippy dog puppy who is just all over that big dog who just is putting up with it and it's moo 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 getting in the way and, and frolicking around and the big dog is just, I could snap you just in half, but I'm going to be restrained. I'm going to forbear with your antics. That's the kind of worthy walking that God wants us to have. Now, if you hear me in this sermon saying, okay, now here's what you got to do. Get your pens out and write your list down of all the things I got. I got to be humble. I got to be, I gotta be uh, gentle. I need to be patient. I need to bear with other people more. That's what I got to do. I'm going to try harder, do more. I think you will miss those virtues, those character traits, if you just beat yourself over the head for not being that way, and go out and try and do harder. Here's what I would suggest. Jesus is all of these. Jesus epitomizes the kind of patience and meekness and gentleness and forbearance that we have to have, the humility that he had, Philippians 2. Everything about him is these traits. Grow closer to him. Walk with him. Spend time with him Live for Him. And those things will start to take care of themselves. Surround yourself with Christ and His teachings and the gospel. And these things will work their way out in your life. Sure, you may be able to identify some some specific things that, that you can do. But remember that they should be an outflow of who you are in Christ. You should be walking worthy of Him because you're spending time walking with Him. And it starts to evidence in your life. You know, we start to look like the people that we hang around with, don't we? The more time you spend with a group of people, you start taking on their language, you start taking on their habits, their traits. The longer you're together with somebody, that's the way it looks. Wouldn't it be marvelous if the longer we spend with Jesus, we start to live out these character traits in our lives? That's my desire. You don't hear me banging you over the head. Be more patient. Be more humble. Be more gentle. Forbear more, I want you to walk with Jesus more and just see what happens as he takes care of that. Look at this next section. It kind of blows me away that he's eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This bond of peace is something that is spirit wrought, that The peace that God bonds us together with starts off with, as we remind you every week, that peace that we have with God. And the Spirit brings that peace to mind as we seek peace with one another. We need to diligently, eagerly maintain this bond of peace, this unity in the bond of peace. This is a motivation that is Spirit-filled. Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit. He would be the comforter. He would convict all men of sin. He would be there to encourage. He was. He is the paraclete. He's the one that helps us to live out our salvation. And this unity is spirit wrought. It's in the bond of peace. So be eager. Be diligent. This word conveys the idea of hastening to do some with the implication of the associated energy and intense effort and motivation. This verb has an element of haste, urgency, even a sense of crisis to it. It suggests zealous concentration and diligent effort. It suggests difficulty and a resolute determination to overcome the difficulty. This is diligence. This is eagerness. And that's what we should be after. A reminder, Paul gives, of the calling in verses 4 through 6. And he does so with a bunch of ones. There's seven ones, which that number seven is usually a significant number in the Bible, a number of completeness, of fullness. Here's the full list of every one that we should be one about. The declaration of these ones that we're called to should lead us to a practice of oneness with one another. And so there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Do you hear the calling, calling, calling mixed in with these ones again? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. These are the ones of your calling. He starts with one body. And if you remember in Ephesians one twenty-two, he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The oneness of the body is important for the unity. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that might have created, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace... He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The cross is all about the body. The cross of Christ and his work on the cross is about putting us into this one body. Ephesians 3, 6 the mystery is that the gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promises of Christ Jesus through the gospel one of the biggest areas of practical division in the early church was people that were of Jewish descent and everybody else the jews thought that they were the special chosen people of god and they were skeptical and doubtful of anyone who would convert and they wanted to press conversion to Judaism over Christianity in some cases, but if Jesus in his cross work has joined these two segments into one body, that's a powerful gospel. There's one spirit. Again, I just went through the the beginning three chapters and see how Paul sets the groundwork What's that one Spirit in verse 13? In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Every believer has been sealed with the same one Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the same Holy Spirit. That's what unifies us in this one body, one Spirit, and we have the one hope, the same hope. Verse 18 of chapter 1, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to that which he called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You have a rich and glorious inheritance. That's our hope. You have it, you have it, you have it, I have it. We have one Lord, and that's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15 of Chapter 1, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. You have the same Lord, I have the same Lord, and you have the same Lord. We're united in Christ as being our Lord. We have one faith, and this could mean either subjectively our faith, our belief. We have a similar exercise of faith, or it could be objectively the faith. The faith once delivered To the saints, as Jude 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's what we've been covering in in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The same teaching. We are faith in the gospel of Christ. One baptism. Now this sounds a little odd, right? If there's something in Christianity that would divide modern American Christians and evangelicals would be the mode of baptism. I love what James Boyce says. He says, It's interesting that Paul should include baptism in this list of unities because opinions about baptism have certainly divided churches. Do you sprinkle? Presbyterians think this is the preferred way. Do you immerse? Baptists think immersion is the only way. What about children? Do you baptize them? Paul is not concerned here with the modes of baptism, but, what with, but with what baptism signifies, namely, identification with Christ. That is the unifying thing. Have you been baptized into Christ? I don't care how you were baptized. I don't care whether it was in a baptistry or a stream, whether it was in a little bit of water, a lot of water. Have you, pub, pub, have you been publicly identified with Jesus Christ? That's the issue. And if that's the issue, then before the world, we are identified together with Jesus Christ and must stand together for him. We're united to Christ. And that is signified, symbolized in our being baptized, that unity that we have in Christ. And finally, there's one God and Father of all. Do you see the Trinity here? We have the one Lord Jesus Christ. We have one spirit. We have one God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity of the triune God is itself an example and model for us to be united to one another. One seventeen says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. It's one of those occasions where we have all three members of the Godhead spoken of in one verse, this unity of the Trinity. All this oneness is the grounding for our calling to live out one with one, with one another. Verse 7 wraps it up. It really brings it to a head. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You know, the doctrine of all these ones and the doctrinal unity of that we share together, That that's so important and that's good. And that's only true, and we can only understand that truth as the Spirit works it in us. And that's a gracious work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes that were once blind, to make us alive and for us to see all of these ones, what God has made in us. And that oneness that we have is a gracious gift. You see, we don't have that oneness naturally. Human beings don't have that natural inclination to get along. It just doesn't happen. Look the world over. Our natural inclination is to fall apart. What's different about believers in Christ is that we've been given grace. And because we've been given grace, we can show grace. That grace that we've been given is a gift a grace from God that we can then extend to others. This week I was, came across a quote from Ed Welch, who's really um, a biblical counselor, helps me think in a lot of uh, ways about what God has done in salvation and how that affects our, our relationships. But he says, who am I? He says, beloved by God. This is Ephesians 1 theology. Who am I? I'm beloved by God. He loves me more than I love him true? Can we say that God loves you more than you love him? Exactly. And now I get to love other people more than they love me. Do you get that? You get to love other people more than they love you. Why? Because that's the way that God loves you. He doesn't love you because you're so kind and generous and nice and humble and patient and meek and forbearing. That's not why he loves you. We love him because he first loved us. And the way in which he has loved us is full of grace. So full of grace that we can show that grace to one another. It is a duty. I won't mince words about it. You must forgive others as you've been forgiven. You must love others. But it's a delight because it's only possible when we understand the grace that we've been given the grace that we've been given to live lives loving others and maintaining this unity. All right, that's the theology of this chapter. That's some very practical things, but how does that look in your relationships? Have you been eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in your family? Um, Have you... Extended that to your parents and your siblings? Have you extended that here in the church body? Are there people that you're not at peace with, that you're not united to, that you need to do something about? Are you going to courageously take a step to go after, to be eager to maintain that unity and work things out with brothers and sisters? You have some of those tools that we've talked about from Matthew 18, from Matthew 7, from James 4, from Romans 12, looking at what the Bible describes as the ways to go about this. I want to encourage you to to take a step in that direction. Now, maybe there's some relationships that are good now, but you need to shore them up. You, You have to be more diligent to guard those and... Maintain those. Um, Husbands, work at your communication with your wives. Work at your touch points that you have with one another. Would you pray with each other regularly? Make it your goal to speak to Jesus together. Do it daily. I I love doing premarital counseling. That's when everybody is very eager to, to see this relationship grow and flourish and be wonderful and you set patterns for that. And that's wonderful. Because 10, 15 years, 20 years down the road, that's hard. It can be a challenge. Set those guards for maintaining unity in your marriage early on. And if you've neglected it, if it's gone by the wayside, get it back. Or if you've never had that habit, go for it now. Look for ways to pursue unity. Where there's some disunity, reach out with a phone call or get together over a cup of coffee. It's hard. But as you pursue Jesus, as you pursue Christlikeness, as you remember your calling, as you are grounded in how loved and accepted and valued you are in Christ, there's a lot of courage that you can find to go after maintaining the unity the unity that is a witness to the watching world. Let's pray. Father, again, we are very challenged in our lives to find uh, peace. Uh, there's, There's hard things about our relationships right now. Lord, I confess there are strained relationships that I have, and I know that you have a calling for us that, frankly, is impossible. It's impossible without you without your grace extended to us so lavishly, so wonderfully. Lord, would you motivate us to walk worthy of this calling? We believe this gospel is true. We believe your salvation is is amazing and wonderful and powerful. Help us to act, speak, and live as if it's true. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number 332. Let's stand and sing, Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove.